We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and a little bit of TV today and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we bring you discussion of music from uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto, Laura Cartman, Michael Giacchino and more as we discuss for the first time in 2020 some new releases as cinemas are finally starting to release some new content as well as the content that has been out online and and I suppose that's the thing isn't it Sean we haven't really covered particularly new films there have been things on streaming services here and there there have been things you know just released into the home but now with the release of films over the last few weeks um, such as things like Proxima which we're going to talk about American Pickle and obviously now Tenet which we're going to do a little bit of a first impression of before we go into more detail later it feels like maybe the right time to start talking about some of the music, given things are now starting to open up a bit more, maybe? It almost feels like we're coming out of a chrysalis or a cocoon, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, there there is stuff. There is stuff that we can engage with. Uh, music, films, television, yeah. Yeah, it's, re- it's really wonderful, actually. I mean, being able to talk about this from a personal point of view, it almost feels like I'm nudging back towards some kind of normality again, having been sort of shut off from it. But yeah, actually, it's a really, really diverse range of um, content that we've got here for um, multifaceted uh, films and TV shows. TV is, is great, actually, because TV has obviously stepped into the breach over the last few months. So yeah, looking forward to engaging with these. Yeah, and, and this will probably be a slightly shorter episode than the normal ones we do because we're not going to do any like top 10 lists or uh, focus on a specific thing as we have done for a while uh, because we're keen to try and t- get back in touch with some some newer music. We're still going to do some of that. We're still going to come back and do some episodes like that as well. Um, but this one might be a little bit shorter as we just pick through some of these scores uh, and, and just generally talk about them. So... I think we'll start today with An American Pickle, which is uh, the new film uh, starring Seth Rogen and produced by Rogen and his usual producing partner, Evan Goldberg, uh, based on a book by Simon Rich, who also writes the screenplay, um, which is uh, about a Jewish immigrant who uh, is preserved in a vat of pickles and wakes up in modern day (laughs) New York (laughs) um, in an attempt and a... Attempts to fit in with his uh, last remaining descendant, which is also played by Seth Rogen. So it's a uh, it's a comedy directed by Brandon Trust in his uh, directorial debut, um, and yeah, it transports Jewish immigrants from like the nineteen nineteen tens through to the uh, late twenty tens. So yeah, the mu- the thing with this is that even though it's quite a uh, a, a, a fun little comedy that aired on. HBO Max, I think, in the in America, and has come out into cinemas in that sort of limited release as, as everything's getting right now in the UK. This actually has a score um, partly by none other than Michael Giacchino, who obviously is one of the biggest composers out there, but also 
another by another composer called Nami Melumad, who is an Israeli Dutch uh, film and TV composer based in LA. And I think probably one of the ways she came into contact with uh, Giacchino is through uh, scoring an episode of Star Trek Short Treks uh, called Q&A, which I haven't seen yet because those short treks haven't been released in the UK. Uh, so it, she would then have been involved in the you know big connected sort of bad robot production stable of that J.J. Abrams sort of created. And obviously Giacchino is connected to Star Trek. So there's every possibility maybe she came into his orbit in that sense partly. But this is a interesting collaboration, Sean, I think. And of all the scores we're talking about today that I've fully heard, I think American Pickle is, is the is the best, actually, the nicest. Yeah, I think this was a really delightful surprise. Uh, I, I Probably one of the most charming comedy scores I've heard in a while, actually, with proper themes and a proper sense of of time and place because clearly the um the storyline is zeroing in on a very very specific um immigrant experience the late um sort of um sort of 20th 21st century immigrant experience jewish immigrant experience so uh, that what that does is that informs a very very specific tapestry for the score and the, the instrumentation is lovely there's like fiddle there's accordion there's there's recorder there's clarinet and there's lots of bits that I mean, unsurprisingly, there's bits that reminded me of maybe of George Gershwin, the few little like polkas and things like that. I thought it was a really lovely, charming little score. And what I understand is that I think Michael Giacchino wrote the main theme and Nami Melumad fleshed that out. She, um, uh, it's my understanding that she, she orchestrated it and probably um, developed those themes beyond their basic principles. But I mean, I think Michael Giacchino's influence is all over the album because there are some um there are some very very funny um track titles on on the album that yeah. um you know which which speaks of Michael Giacchino because he always does that he he when I I interviewed him a, a few years ago he says he has um he always has a um a competition with his music editor as to who can come up with the silliest <laughs> most pun based track titles <laughs> so it 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 is it does appear to be a kind of fusion of of his input and Nami Melamad's kind of in, in, intuitive ability to create the right uh soundscape for the um two characters played by Seth Rogen but yeah I, I I thought this was a really lovely score I suppose it's like you know it's almost easy to forget that Michael Giacchino because he he, he sort of inspires so many of these big broad you know massive blockbusters I think he does enjoy sort of dabbling in this kind of stuff as well you know at the same time when he where he can and actually um I think Nami Melomad does a great job in fleshing a lot of this out. And actually, you know, I think taking what is, what at times does feel like quite definably sort of Giacchino stylings, but actually inflecting them with that, with particular sounds that, you know, evoke the Jewish experience, evoke the immigrant experience, while being light, while being fun, while being, you know, it's a bit like when Giacchino scores things like Spider-Man, where he, he has those lighter tones in there, those much more comedic tones. Uh, but I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was really surprised by this. Like, I, I, I haven't, we haven't seen two of the films we're talking about today yet because they're, they're they've been out in cinemas and we haven't been back to the cinema to see them. So I have, we, I don't think either of us have seen Amer- an American Pickle yet. But if the film's anything as good as the score, then it it should be good. I, I, I think it's it's got mixed reviews. The movie, but yeah, this score is certainly one of the better ones I think I've actually heard this year. So. Yeah, I, I was really quite shocked. 
in a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose tonally, if you're thinking of Giacchino scores, it remind it would remind me of something like Ratatouille, although that was geared more yeah. towards the Parisian angle. But that sort of light, that light sense of whimsy, I think, uh, or maybe you could cite one of his other Pixar scores in that sense. Just to cite some of the um, track titles. Um, so we've got Seltzer Your Soul, <laughs> um, When the Green Bound Breaks, <laughs> Pickle Your Fancy. <laughs> uh, here's, here's one that I like The Pickle Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> uh, The Silver Brining, <laughs> and then the final track, uh, Pickles Sweets, S U I T E, or Sour, which I think is, is, is <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that is the Giacchino influence there. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that was the mate, the biggest one he did. I think the uh, the final sort of sweet. I think that was his main impression on it, really. But I would recommend this one. I think it works as a solo listen. It's very sweet natured. It's very fun. It has some really good themes running through it that I think are quite catchy and will quite and will stick with you. Um, so yeah, it's it's a winner. So hopefully the the, the movie will be will be amusing as well and be worth the uh, worth looking at. I'll give it a watch when it finally drops on. Uh, streaming somewhere so yeah thumbs up i think from us both there sure. yeah well I, I, I think the, the the thing is um apparently nami melumad is is the first woman to ever score for star trek I, I was reading so that that is a progressive it's a progressive step forwards so um i mean the, the representation of women in um film scoring is something we'll touch on with reference to another score on this episode but i did read that and i thought well that's terrific that she was brought on board for this and the fact that it enlisted um Dennis Sands as a mix from it's no wonder that you can hear with absolute clarity the um dialogue between all the various speciality instruments in the orchestra because Dennis Sands is a wonderful mixer who very often works with Alan Silvestri and brings a lovely clarity to Alan Silvestri's scores. So yeah, I think um I think um Melimad and Jikino have done a terrific job with this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That and that that is, I think that is, I was trying to then think about people who've scored Star Trek and I think you're right actually. Yeah, she is the first one. And even though Q&A is only a short trek, it's only a few minutes. That is really good. It could mean she gets you know more, uh, you know gigs on on that franchise in the future potentially because they're trying to be quite inclusive, I think, and uh, in in what they're doing. You know, they're hiring a lot of female directors and and things like that, and people of color. So that's that's really good. So fingers crossed, yeah, because she shows real promise, which is which is great. So uh, yeah, let's hope to hear more from her in the future. Let's uh, move on then to talk about a uh, another film before we get to because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna ultimately finish today with your first impressions on Tenet. Uh, which is going to be exciting because you've seen it. So is that something called envy in your voice? <laughs> uh, it might be. It might be. You might have detected that. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, we're going to talk about um, some TV with uh, Lovecraft Country. But yeah, before we do, let's briefly talk before then about Proxima, which is the uh, new film from Alice Winokur, the French uh, director. And uh, this stars Eva Green as a woman uh, balancing her work as an astronaut, preparing for a long stint on the uh, the ISS, the International Space Station, with being a mother to an eight-year-old uh, daughter. And all the uh, family sort of complexities that are within. Again, this is a film that we haven't seen yet because it's, uh, it's just... In fact, it was one of those films that and Unhinged with Russell Crowe were the two films that sort of first crept out when the cinemas really started to reopen just about a few weeks ago. That was the first things, you know, for, for Cineworld anyway, the biggest chain in the UK, really. 
Um, those were the two newest films showing. So Proxima probably became a lot more well-known <laughs> on that basis than it ever would have done in a normal situation. I think it would have been a fairly low-key release. But this has a score by uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto, who is obviously uh, one of the most, if not the most, influential sort of Japanese composer working, um, who's composed things from going back as far as The, the Last Emperor um, through to things like uh, The Revenant, the, a few years ago where obviously you know the classic Leonardo DiCaprio lives inside a bear film that sounds so wrong when you say it like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true uh, <laughs> puts a whole new complexion on it, it? Yeah, it um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah so in this he brings his stylings to a film which it balances obviously, you know, this very sort of, you know, cosmic style adventure with, you know, astronauts and space and that kind of thing with a very grounded, earth-based family sensibility. And I suppose this one, as opposed as opposed to American Pickle, I found this one didn't work for me quite the same way as a solitary experience. I think it's it's much more ambient, and I feel, I feel sure, and I don't know what you think, but I think this would work really quite well with the movie but i don't know if it fully works as an independent experience well it's classic raiwichi sakamoto it's very ethereal it's very dreamy there are these long not sort of held chords long string suspensions that seem to stretch off into infinity i i think i liked it more than you did i wasn't sure at first but around the time that we get to the midway point there are these angelic choral voices that start to be used, which do give a real sense of heavenly beauty. I haven't seen the film, so I can only assume that the voices are in some way Eva Green's character emotionally reaching out to the daughter that she's left on Earth. I imagine that's probably got something to do with it, but it's classic Roichi Sakamoto. You think of things like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, with that incredibly famous um, piano theme. Uh, there's a lovely video of him performing that uh, live. Actually, there's multiple videos of, of him performing that live. Um, it's it's a really magical experience. I think that there is nothing remotely surprising about the Proximus score whatsoever. It is exactly what you'd expect from this um, composer. He has got a very, very distinctive um, house style. Uh, what I will say is that I think it, it, it could almost be um, a, a, a kind of counterpoint to The Revenant because The Revenant was cold and the revenant um tonally was very similar but it was much more in the lower registers the revenant was about stripping the warmth out of the orchestra whereas this subtly plays up the warmth of the orchestra this is more subtly optimistic though there are darker moments as well but there is much more of a sense of optimism and hope in this and but they are two both scores are two tone poems one sort of brooding and chilly the this one's relatively warmer and more optimistic but very very quite clearly hallmarks of, of their um, composer and one should also say of course that he uh, Sakamoto didn't work on The Revenant alone he worked on that with um, Alvinoto uh, yeah I I enjoyed this one more than um, more than you I think I thought it was I thought it had a, a, a lovely um, beauty about it frankly I wouldn't say that I didn't enjoy it I think more I found it, I suppose it made me think of, I know it's not exactly the same, but it made me think of stuff like Under the Skin. It made me think of things like Michael Levy. Where, and that one, even though that score is is obviously very tethered to that film, in a weird way, I kind of enjoy that separately as well. There's something about that music, which is quite hypnotic. 
And I don't know if I got that with this, but I do think, like you say, you've you've described it very well as ever. But in terms of how it sounds and and some of those choral things going on, there were points it was lovely, yes. But I think I didn't. It didn't connect to me, and maybe that's just a personal preference thing. In this case, I'm not sure. I'm not. I, th- I think I think it's I think it's pretty good, and I think you know it's. I, th- I th- like I say, I think it would work really well with the film. I don't. But I think also, I think you're you're a bit more familiar with Sakamoto than me. He's not somebody I haven't seen a vast amount of the films that he's actually scored, and he's done quite a lot of things over the years in different countries, um, both in the West and in the East. In fact, all the way back to stuff like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, you know, which starred David Bowie back in the early '80s. So I, I don't know. I think you. I think you know a little bit more about his style than me as well. So maybe you you were able to appreciate some of the things he was doing a little bit more, possibly. Yeah, Sakamoto's career has been extraordinarily vast, and it's it's very very difficult to boil down here. But yeah, I think if one were to listen to just a few of his scores, you could discern that style pretty pretty immediately. It's it's very identifiable. It's interesting that you mentioned Under the Skin there. I think with Under the Skin, what Mika Levy was doing there was actually breaking boundaries in terms of um composing a, an alien language through music. And that was um a very, very uncomfortable microtonal score that when you listen to it on its own terms, it's very unpleasant and very uncomfortable as it's supposed to be. That's the idea of it. It's very well tailored to the film directed by Jonathan Glazer. But in that, she was consciously trying to communicate the inner um, feelings of the, the Scarlett Johansson character, who is, of course, an alien in human form. I think with the, if, if, in, if Under the Skin was an internal score, I think this uh, Proxima is an external score, and it's about how does... How does the emotion of one woman um, match itself to the to the environment of space? That's the impression that I get from it. I, I haven't seen the film. Like you said, it's 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 terrific that the film has has had a, um, a sort of more of a degree of exposure than it otherwise would have done. Yeah, I'll have I'll have to catch up with it at some point. The film that is. Mm, yeah, definitely. I'd like to see it. Absolutely. It was uh, it, 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 when when I saw it out there, I was like, oh, this this looks up my kind of street. So yeah, when it when it eventually drops, I definitely will check it out, and hopefully, I will get a bit more out of the score from the film, and then maybe in reverse, I might get more out of it independently. Actually, if it's ever if I ever listen to it, you know, solo after after watching the film, sometimes it can change your impression. So so yeah, I think it is good, and I think it is it is worth seeking out definitely, especially if you're a Sakamoto fan. So yeah, I think bigger thumbs up from you, moderate thumbs up from me, <laughs> but it's still good. I think that's what's called, uh, Roger Ebert used to call it a waving thumb, it's a wave- in the middle. <laughs> yeah, basically, a waving thumb. But yeah, let's move then on to TV, and because uh, we, you know, we, we are technically a film and TV, you know, music podcast, that's how I badge us on social media, but we don't talk a massive amount about TV, I think the last time we did, we talked about Good Omens and Game of Thrones and things like that, so it's been a while, it's been a good year. Um, and obviously there is some brilliant stuff going on in TV in terms of composing and it has been for a long, 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 long time. But uh, we tend to obviously just focus a little bit more on cinema. But Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country is obviously the big new thing on TV right now. It's one of the uh, it, it's one of the big things in the zeitgeist. And uh, this is, if anyone isn't sure, Lovecraft Country is based on a book by Matt Ruff that came out in 2016. And uh, in this case, it's a HBO series produced by J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele and uh, show ran by Misha Green, who made uh, Underground, which was a story, which was a, a series all about the uh, the Underground Railroad a couple of years ago. 
And this has, you know, connective tissue in the fact that it's set in Jim Crow 1950s America and uh, revolves around a group of black characters uh, in uh, Chicago who head off to the so-called Lovecraft Country based on H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic weird fiction. And they're looking for the father of a character called Atticus Freeman, who is um, the uh, played by Jonathan Majors, who comes back from the army and his, his father's disappeared, so they go off on this hunt into the darkest recesses of, of Massachusetts, which is racist and full of horrible, horrible, you know, white supremacists and things like that. And, crucially, Lovecraftian monsters, <laughs> basically, <laughs> um, to appear. And, you know, it is uh, the, the book is... I, I won't go too much into it, because I don't really want to spoil it for anybody who's going to watch the series. But the book is not quite, what, not what you expect, actually. And the first two episodes that have aired, as we record have taken people by surprise because they've packed a lot in. And that, I would say, is you know very faithful to the book itself. But obviously, in a, in a story like this, which is full of you know all kinds of different things, in terms of monsters, in terms of race, in terms of um, you know exploring lots and lots of different themes, you need music to complement it. And apart from the use of some really good actual you know music songs in the first two episodes, there is also... Uh, music by a composer called Laura Cartman, who I hadn't actually heard of until you you spoke to me about it yesterday, Sean. And you've you actually had a conversation with her very recently about her work. So uh, I think it's uh, it's a good point to actually talk about what she's done with Lovecraft Country and uh, what she's brought to it. So was that that's that sounds like it was a really good chat you had with her. It was ter- it was terrific. Uh, it's it's really really great. And we, we mentioned um, I mentioned just a few minutes ago about representation of women in this um, area, and uh, we 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 spoke at length about this and about how uh, Laura Cartman is is an academy governor and about how she is she's attempting to sort of break down these boundaries and set up more seminars for women and get more conversations about women in the industry. But she, um, as far as I'm concerned, I remember Laura Cartman for that um, 2003 Steven Spielberg series, Taken. Not the Liam Neeson series, the Steven Spielberg TV series, (laughs) Taken. Um, Not not the Liam Neeson films where he hunts aliens. (laughs) (laughs) I will find you a spaceship and I will kill you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It wouldn't be this this podcast if we didn't do and throw an impression, a bad impression. (laughs) Contractual impression over. Carry on. <laughs> but do you remember that? Do you remember that that, ser- that series taken? I do, but I didn't watch it actually. Weirdly enough, it's right up my street, but I never got round to it. But I know I remember it. It's, it's basically close encounters in serialised TV form. But the, the, weirdly, the, the thing I remember is the opening credit sequence set to Laura Cartman's music, which is very, very John Williams esque. It's very beguiling. It's got a real sense of wonder to it. And I spoke at length with her about that and she was really pleased that I that I remembered it it's, it's really because I must have seen that when I was 16 again it's 2003 I think it came out in the UK so and she said that um she really really enjoyed working on uh, Lovecraft Country because she worked she collaborated with Misha Green before on underground with um a soul musician called Raphael Sadiq who is now reunited with Cartman for Lovecraft Country and she said that what this series does is it it it, it balls up everything that she likes. It's it's a social allegory. It's a monster movie. It's about love. It's about sex. It's about race. It's about all these um extraordinary things all bound up together. And she said that it's basically catnip for um for a composer. 
and she loved zeroing in on the uh, sci-fi um, horror elements in particular. And um, having seen uh, the first five episodes of the series, I, I had to watch the first five episodes in preparation for that interview. The show is absolutely crackers in a good way. (laughs) There is a lot going on. And yeah, you're right. It it did take me by surprise. I mean, I've seen things in the first five episodes that I didn't think I would otherwise see. And Laura said to me, she said, blimey, wait until you get to episode seven. She said that particularly, wait until you get to episode seven. She said to me personally, you will love it. And I'm like, oh, okay. what does that mean in terms of does that mean that the score is going to be particularly fulsome I, I don't know yet we'll have to we'll have to wait and see on that the other way that that laura cartman has broken down boundaries with this is that this she she was compelled to record uh, the score for this series while in coronavirus lockdown obviously none of the musicians could get in the recording studio she couldn't get in the room with them so she brought together a host of brilliant sound mixers and sound engineers to go right Misha Green, as Laura Cartman told me, loves the symphony. She loves the orchestra. She really wants a big kind of symphonic approach to this. How on earth do we do it if we can't, for health and safety reasons, get into the recording studio? So what she did was, rather astonishingly, close-miked each of the individual um, session musicians in their own homes and recorded each of them individually and then decided to um, double up some of them. Laura Cartman told me she hates doubling up the strings because it creates, in her words, a fuzzy sound. So she would double up the strings with the French horns or whatever, and then mix it all together to give the impression that what you're hearing is a traditional symphony orchestra recorded in a sound, sound stage. And it's it's really quite remarkable. So it's it's the first use of an online orchestra in a TV show. And having watched... Yeah, it's really impressive. And having watched the series, you wouldn't be able to tell at all. It's it's very well done. I mean, that's a testament to the skill of the instrumentation and the themes. And, you know, there's lots of use of um, clarinet and saxophone used in often quite atonal, quite brutal ways. But there are tender love themes as well. I think Laura cites me there are at least six themes that she's come up with this she and Raphael Steak. Uh Yeah, I... I it, it, it catches the sort of freneticism and the unpredictability of the um, of the show very very well. I, I, as I as I record this now, I'm I kind of feel like the need to get watch all of the series in order to evaluate the score properly to see how the score resolves itself. But I'm really impressed with what I've heard so far. Yeah, I I, I really like it. I think it's. I, I, there's so much going on in the show that, that I think what the, why, why the score is working is that it kind of complements it without being too certainly from the episodes I've seen without being too o- over the over the top necessarily. It sort of weaves in with it all and, and adds to the mixture. So yeah, I I, th- I think I think it's really good and I, I'm I'm excited to see what else comes of it. I mean, it, it's it's just a really enjoyable show altogether, and there's some, there is some great use of actual like um, sound and music in there outside of actual you know scored work um you know particularly there was a great in episode one one of the best moments was when they overlay a uh speech from james baldwin which yes is a fantastic montage do you remember that bit that yeah is a brilliant montage sequence where you have him reciting a speech all about you know all kinds of different institutionalized racism and things like that it's fantastic it's fantastically done and in uh in the in the second episode, the the big climax. What I loved about that 
was at the climax of the whole thing, which is this ridiculous, you know, sort of me- mixture of Lovecraft, some sort of Harry Potter mad, you know, <laughs> madness. Like, but it's not scored with this big bombastic sort of epic, oh, kind of thing. It's more, it's set to White is on the Moon, which is that, you know, that brilliant song. It's so good. The way they juxtapose, the way that they're juxtaposing music and sound at points with, with, with things that historically would have been presented in a much more traditional, you know, epic way. That It's almost like the, the, the music is sort of, underscoring things in a different way. There's also use of much more contemporary tracks as well, which is juxtaposed with the 1950s setting as well. Lots of R&B and things like that. I think it's very cleverly done, to be honest. Although I did laugh when uh, the episode two is called White is on the Moon, based on the song. And on on the Skybox that I recorded it on, uh, somebody had typed Whitney's on the Moon. (laughs) (laughs) I was like... Which Whitney's thing? Whitney Houston? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's like come on, guys. Got to love that. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where um, Eva Green was going in Proxima. Maybe she was going to could go be. meet Whitney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be. Whitney, Whitney's up there with Elvis, you know, all yeah. the rest. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Hoffa, yeah. Lord Lucan, they're all there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, so. Where, where can people find your conversation then with uh, Laura Cartman? Because I think it's going to be out somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, that'll be on uh, Film School Monthly um, imminently. I, I I need to type that up as as we're recording it. Uh, I think that yeah, the, the, you're right. The the use of um, pre existing songs is great. There's a cover of Cinnamon that plays over the end credits of every episode, which which is really terrific. The the deliberately anachronistic use of contemporary R and B really threw me for a loop when I first watched it because in the first episode I was like hang on a minute that song definitely did not come from that period I can tell just from hearing it and and it, and it completely throws you in like that I think what the music is doing both from Laura Cartman and Raphael Sadiq and also the songs is it's meant to disorient you it's meant to um, both suggest the period and also dislocate you which is very very appropriate to the works of um, H.P. Lovecraft who you know, despite his racist inclinations, and that is clearly what the show is drawing on, the fact that he he was an extraordinary pioneer of cosmic horror. He had, let's say, less than savoury views on some aspects, but he was he was he was an astonishing writer he wrote some really really remarkably scary stories about um the idea that human beings coming into uh contact with um a, a higher being in their perception forever being changed cosmic horror and weird fiction and all that so i think the show and the music do a very very good job of approximating the feel of what it feels like to read a H.P. Lovecraft story. And the show also uses fantasy and horror as a window into the real horror, which is racial segregation, which unfortunately underpinned a lot of um, Lovecraft's own uh, views. But his his writing on its own terms is, is fabulous. But I, I like the way that it both the show and the music both champion and critique his work. Yeah, definitely. And he, I wrote a piece on the first episode, actually, and uh, which I'll, I'll put in the show notes, I'll link. But... I then posted it on various H.P. Lovecraft groups. I'm a big fan of Lovecraft. I have been for a while now. I've got I've got his entire works in this massive book. 
um, that makes for uh, great bedtime reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the rats in the walls and all that. So, yeah, that's going to be unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks yeah. for that, HP. Yeah, he's, uh, his stories are fantastic. Like, they are they are uniquely weird and strange and fostered, you know, not just an entire subgenre, but, you know, an entire mythos and lexicon, but have inspired everybody, like, up to Stephen King onwards. Like you know, his his influence is vast, and and you're we're finding right now a real resurgence in Lovecraftian fiction, and and an emergence of his name far more than we ever have before in the last few years. It, 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 Lovecraft is everywhere right now, and and I th- and there's lots of reasons for that, I think. But but when I posted that, there were a lot of people who were very resistant to the idea of confront, like they are with a lot of things, but very resistant to confronting the the reality of Lovecraft racism. You know, so there, there is there are some fascinating discussions going back and forth, but and I think Lovecraft Country is both in in the show and the music is I think it's interesting that it's come out now. Actually, it's the way it's it's fortuitous timing in a way because the show in its own way, while still being you know a big broad piece of fiction, is which which ultimately is not entirely really about Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Lovecraft is a part of the mythos of that show, but it's not necessarily about H.P. Lovecraft, despite the title. But I think it's factoring into a bigger, broader conversation going on across the world right now about about the 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 uh, you know institutional racism, about our history, our legacy in terms of race. So it's it's quite fascinating because I don't necessarily think this. I think this was always pretty much coming out around this point, but it's quite strange how it's landed now actually because it's it's in a good in that sense it's it's in a good position to be part of this wider conversation i think yeah timely isn't the word and i think that the show is at pains to to point out that any monsters or any supernatural cosmic horror trappings are an extension of the real terror which is racially segregated in america that is the real that that is the real terror and you, you feel that very, very acutely through the, the terrific central performances from Jonathan Majors and uh, Journey Smollett as, yeah. as Tick and uh, Letty, both of whom are, are really, really great. There are also some very, very fine performances from the likes of um, uh, Michael Kenneth Williams. And it, it's a very, mm. very, very fine cast. It really and, is, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd recommend anyone who can access the um, show. It's, I mean, it's a HBO show. It's on Now TV. Uh, I believe these, as we record this, the second episode has just come up. I'd recommend mm. everyone to go and watch it and to, and to listen to the the music yeah. as well. It's terrific. Absolutely, it's 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 a really good show. It's it's very very good. So yeah, um, check it out if you have the means. Definitely check it out and check out Film Score Monthly for your detailed chat with Laura Cartman. I, I mean, Phil, anyone listening to this, I imagine knows of Film Score Monthly. But if you if you haven't, become a subscriber. Check it out because it is fantastic. There's some great stuff in there. And Sean, you you contribute to it fairly regularly, don't you? So um, yeah, so yeah, that'll be really good. All right then, let's let's get let's get down to business then. Tenet, because <laughs> th- this is what everyone's here for. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do is we're going to do first impressions on the score and obviously the film from your perspective, having seen it. But we originally the plan for this episode was that we were going to talk about the score itself but the score isn't out yet the score is coming out roughly aligned with the american release so we can't listen to ludwig jorinson's score independently yet um and i haven't listened to it yet but we're gonna that our next episode 
I think the plan is our next episode in a couple of weeks is going to delve into the score in more detail and more about Tenet and things like this as more people have seen it. I will say in advance that I probably won't have seen Tenet either by the point of that episode um, because I'm I'm not I'm not rushing out to see it myself, which is obviously a choice lots of people are, are making right now. Some are going now, which is great. Some are waiting like me. Um, so I'm going to be relying on you, Sean, to uh, <laughs> to coach me through this without spoiling anything. And we've we've said before the episode we're not going to spoil anything here. You know, Sean, he's he's very very good at talking and describing things without spoiling anything. You know, he's he's been doing it for years, as you all know, listeners. He's very good at this. So we're not going to spoil anything. Um, but Sean, what did you think? What did you think, firstly, of the well, of the score in the film, or, or really, are they both one and the same in a way? Are they both connected? Oh yeah, they're they're, they're very very uh, closely bound with one another. Can I just say, actually, on that subject of spoilers, I um, people who know me, I've actually got a really bad reputation of dropping clangers in casual conversation and ruining things for people. <laughs> so I I um, I have to be very very careful here. Um, Were you one of those people who like gave the game away about the sixth sense? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm the worst thing about the sixth sense was on James Newton Howard's score. The final track was called Malcolm is. Dead. Dead. and i was like oh what, what? Oh. It's crazy like that's, it's... that's up there with qui-gon's funeral <laughs> from, from john williams yeah. Myth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well fortunately um i won't be doing any anything like that on this i'll just talk about impressions of tenets so um i was lucky enough to go to a um uh, an imax preview screening at the bfi imax in waterloo on uh, monday the 24th of uh, august so and the um first thing to say the safety guidelines were terrific we had to wear our masks throughout the duration of the movie and it's not a short movie it's two and a half hours long so weirdly enough the the atmosphere of the screening with people having to sit at least two meters from each other wearing masks had an appropriately disorienting feel of a christopher nolan film anyway and in, in, in an odd kind of way and obviously the some of the iconography of the movie involves people wearing masks or oxygen masks so that that's kind of further <laughs> furthers the comparison a bit so um i'm not going to give away anything about the movie i'll just say that on, on the base of the trailer John David Washington is a globe-trotting operative um, on the trail of a dastardly plot involving time inversion and a world in danger. There's um, an, an all-star sporting class, uh, cast, uh, Robert Pattinson, Kenneth Branagh, Elizabeth Debicki, Michael Caine. Um, <laughs> Michael Caine. Michael Caine. And, uh, and, and Michael Caine only gets one bloody scene in a movie, but it's not an emotional <laughs> scene. But you've got Michael Caine who's eating steak and chips and he's giving away a bit of plot exposition. And like that, that is it. That's, like, that's it, um, yeah. And that's, that's all that you get from him. And uh, But Michael Caine actually gets the best line in the film, actually. And he also gets a good, oh, cool. good line uh, directed at um, uh, Brooks Brothers, the, the, suit, the suit makers, which is very funny. So um, as with all Christopher Nolan movies, I, bearing in mind as we record this, I've only seen it once. It comes at you in a ferocious blur of um, physics-defying, time-manipulating, globe-trotting, mega-budget, ear-splitting action. And I came out of the other side of it thoroughly scrambled and confused by it. Not altogether sure if I was satisfied with the film. I know there there are things in it that are genuinely extraordinary there are sequences where I genuinely thought I've never seen that done on the big screen before. And for that, 
Nolan's technical ambition needs to be um, admired. I think I do need to go and see it again to try and work out if there are actually any brains to go with its brawn because I'm not sure at the moment. I think at its heart, what it's doing for all its talk about the the, the, the reversing of um, entropy, the idea uh, and things like that, Chris Nolan has touched on that. It is essentially a quite cheesy and um, evil Russians want to destroy the world kind of movie. <laughs> Okay. very James Bond I mean Chris Nolan's been very yeah. upfront with with the comparisons to James Bond but when you got Kenneth Branagh doing the evil Russian accent they talk all the way through it like that and I'm like oh, okay right it's that kind of movie <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean yeah. I was like are we, are we allowed I was watching it thinking are we allowed to get away with that anymore are we, are we, are we allowed to do that I and mean, just not 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 for purposes <laughs> of sensitivity but for purposes of irony <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like, but, um, oh, oh Sean I, but, we all know irony's dead now oh, yeah, is it? <laughs> that's actually that's a really good point we're post irony <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so and there is a problem and we're getting on to the music and, and the general issue that i have sometimes with christopher nolan with sound in christopher nolan's movies i just want to point out christopher nolan is a hero of mine i want this film to do well i want this movie to redeem what a horrible sort of prior six months of flatlining non-movies i want this movie to blow away the cobwebs and to, and to draw people back in because it is as as a feast of popcorn hungry spectacle that in certain scenes pushes the visual and technical boundaries of cinema. It does do that. I'm just not sure if there's anything behind it, but I, I would encourage people to go and see it because this is what we've been deprived of over the last few months. But in terms of the music and the sound, I've often had a problem with Nolan's movies in that sometimes the dialogue goes like this. And the music is going like this, and it's kind of like, well, it's, it's like just balance it out, Chris. <laughs> it's funny you should. Well, it's funny you should say that because when we did, my wife and I did a big Nolan rewatch. We watched pretty much all of his films before, you know, the arrival of Tenet. Even though we're not going to go and see Tenet, we still did all the films, and we must mainly for uh, an episode of Motion Pictures, my other podcast, um, where we talked about Nolan's films and stuff. And one of the things we found, and my wife is. Uh, yeah, Sounds terrible. I sound like an awful person, but I, I call her bat ears because she picks up sounds. You know, my you're good friends, but you're friends with my wife. You've been friends with my wife for a long time, so you know. But she is my wife. is extraordinarily receptive to sound. Like she, she, I, I call her bat ears. I say you could, you could pick up sonar of a Russian submarine. You could. <laughs> Right, in the Baltic. <laughs> like she, so any kind of sound, she really picks it up. But And in this case, Nolan's films would lurch, as you say, from really quiet to... Do, 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 like this. And, and she was like, oh, noise, sound. And I have to, we had to keep lowering and raising it and lowering it and raising it. And I have to say, I get it. You know, I get it. For Nolan's films, I completely... Sometimes, and I think it's probably because, actually, her her hearing is normal and I'm deaf as a... I, I, I'm, I'm deaf as they come, right? <laughs> So I take I take the Mickey out before it, but it's probably my issue. But uh, in this case, I got it because yeah, we had to modulate the sound quite frequently. Um, so it, there is something about the mixing, isn't there, in in Nolan's films, which is. Do you think that's intentional? Do you think he does that on purpose? Yeah, I do. I think that there is meant to be a, a disorienting onslaught of music, sound, dialogue, pyrotechnics, and I think sometimes he gets away with it. I think. In, for my money in Tenet, it was a real problem because it it is a very exposition-led movie. Even though I've said fundamentally at its heart, it's a cheesy kind of 
Cold War riffing movie, there is a lot of dialogue treasure. Literally every scene, you've got that blunt force Christopher Nolan dialogue in which people are explaining, frankly, incomprehensible concepts to put to each other. And like, okay, I'm, I'm just about, I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with this, and now I can barely hear what they're saying. And there is one, there is one scene in which I laughed involuntarily about sort of um, a third <laughs> of the way through the movie, in which it's kind of like you've had this, you've already had this barrage of incomprehensible dialogue for a third of the movie beforehand, and then they decide to set a scene on a catamaran in which people have to yell the storyline at each other over the sound of the <laughs> roaring waves. And I was like, oh, okay, that almost feels like I'm being goaded. That feels like I'm being needled. And, and I don't really know why the scene plays out like it does anyway. And it's kind of like, okay, so so what you're doing is you're trying to find the most impossible context in which we can actually hear what people are saying to each other. Um, so that is a huge <laughs> problem. On the, specifically on the subject of the music, so this is the first uh, Nolan film since The Prestige, I believe, that's not been scored by Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer went and uh, has scored Denis Villeneuve's Dune because Hans Zimmer said that was a passion project for him. So um, Ludwig Göransson has stepped into the breach. Uh, Ludwig Göransson, who won an Oscar for Black Panthers, worked extensively with Childish Gambino, uh, worked on the Creed movies, is an experimentalist and a pioneer in his own right and a terrific composer. And I know... There'll be people who will say, and I've read several reviews of Tenet now, I deliberately didn't read any reviews before I saw the movie, but I'm catching up on them now, who do the usual thing of saying that the the, the, the score is just a honking, squawking kind of sort of barrage of, of noise but you know one doesn't go to the standard film review in order for a nuanced ex- examination of, of the music they obviously just see it in a fairly superficial way i thought that it was an interesting score i thought that it's largely electronic and it, it there are various textures that kind of burble and variously kind of shimmer away in the background that speak of the fact that the reality that we know isn't the reality that we know that there there is a fabric to reality that can be pulled away messed with reversed and i think the score creates an appropriately discombobulating atmosphere in the quieter moments where i think it's the most effective it just it suggests something that's both organic and inorganic through the electronic ensemble that that Goranson uses which i think is very effective i mean in the action scenes it does I'd say it does threaten to fall into the Hans Zimmer horn of doom, like blaring Hans Zimmer inception thing. But I don't think it does that. I think Goranson has got a a distinctive voice that it, it doesn't just sound like, I mean, clearly Nolan has a house style and Nolan has expectations for all of his composers and he wants music to sound a certain way. But I think from what I heard in the film, Goranson walked within those parameters pretty effectively actually and i think it, it it is unfortunate that the movie is already very noisy and like a lot of other nolan movies nolan wants the music to be kind of big and noisy in the action sequence as well that's not necessarily the fault of the composer i mean how, how the music comes across in the movie in any movie is obviously a direct product of the, of the director as well as as well as the composer but i do think that there are more nuances in the score than a lot of the film reviewers have made out. I mean, a lot of it sounds like the quieter sections of Inception. You know, there were those lovely kind of teasing sort of underscore melodies in Inception that suggested um, sort of temporal imbalance and strange, um, strange narrative devices. I thought, as as heard for the first time, I thought in in the movie itself, I thought it was one of the best things about the film, and I really like Goranson as a composer. But I now do what I want to go and see the film again 
to evaluate the movie and also the score again and i want to hear the score in its own terms because i don't think i'm going to get the full picture until i do both of those things no absolutely yeah i think i'm i'm very excited to listen to it i think it will i mean he, he is he is and like we say we will go into more depth with the Orenson and the and the score in the next episode but i think he is one of those composers who he's making a mark for himself obviously you know after black panther particularly which really put him on the map and yeah, I, I I had a feeling he wouldn't do something exactly the same as Zimmer, but along those you know similar Nolan lines. So it's in, it's going to be interesting. I'm very very excited to listen to it. I think it drops on Spotify in just over a week from where we are. I think. Um, so yeah, by the time we record again, hopefully it will be on there and we can give it a listen and uh, and and see where we go with it. So uh, right now. And we'll, like I say, we'll come back to it. But right now, are we thumbs up or are we that waving thumb <laughs> for this? What would you say? <laughs> I'd say it's a thumbs up. Bro- broadly speaking, it's a thumbs up. I think that in this instance, the um, the marriage of image and music is de- is meant to be deliberately overwhelming and disorienting. It's clearly a, a very, very complex film to score. It is, it is on one level um, about the disruption of, uh, of entropy, the flow of an object, and yet it's also about temporal disruption, time inversion, and yet all of that is masking what is fundamentally quite an old-fashioned, creaky um, James Bond throwback pastiche movie that whisks you from scene to scene. So it's, it's clearly it's a contradictory movie, I think, and that must have made it very, very hard to score. And clearly... Goranson is is coming off um, a, a wave of Nolan movies that have established a very very singular musical style. So it's like, okay, how do I tweak that and yet also operate within it? I think on first impression, he's done he's done a really good job with it. But it, it, once again, I will have to see the film again and I'll have to listen to the score in its own terms to judge it properly. And that's a good cliffhanger to end things on. I think there. It's <laughs> a good uh, pause point. Uh, and yeah, we'll come back in the next episode, hopefully, and uh, go into more depth on Tenet because it's going to be what everyone's talking about for a while. I think this film and this music, and uh, even though there are other things going to be out, and we will, you know, look at that stuff. You know, we've got Mulan coming up very soon as well, which is going to be another highly anticipated piece of work. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's going to be great to go into this in more depth. So we will do that, and we'll also put. We won't do a. Um, a, a playlist as such for this episode because we haven't talked about a great amount of stuff but I will, we will link the uh, the scores to Proxima and uh, An American Pickle um, in the show notes uh, and I don't think the score to Lovecraft Country is out yet actually is it? I don't think it's no, online. No I'm not sure so. when that's when that's coming online actually but I, mm. we, we can probably retrospectively go and add that back in can't we to the show notes yeah. when, when it's out. Probably and, and there are some actual quite fun um, soundtracks out there that people are putting together of the actual of the music that's in the show you know the actual songs and things like that so uh, maybe we'll throw something like that up for you to listen to as well. So yeah it's gonna it's gonna be great to come back and look at this in in more depth. But uh, yeah, I, I I am super envious about Tenet, Sean. <laughs> but I'm glad you got to see it anyway safely and uh, you and you enjoyed it. Just just one one final final thing. I don't know if you saw that video of Tom Cruise going to that same IMAX in Waterloo, <laughs> yeah. going incognito, yeah. wearing a mask. Did you see that? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. which is really yeah. terrific. And it's like, oh, oh, okay. So Tom Cruise has come among us mere mortals and has come to watch the new Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie. That that is I a sign the- of of how powerful the Nolan brand is. I think. 
Definitely. I think there was a, uh, uh, I might be the Guardian piece with the headline, Tom Cruise's most audacious stunt yet going to a movie <laughs> during the <Yeah>. pandemic. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's going to be exciting. I, I can't wait to see it. I will update people next time as to what my situation with that is because I don't think I'll have seen it by then. But, uh, but yeah, shorter episode from us this time, but uh, hopefully you've enjoyed our uh, ramblings on film music. So thanks for joining us. And remember, we're part of the uh, We Made This Podcast Network and uh, this new uh, film score music and TV music is not all we're talking about. So we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed on the network in a minute. Uh, but until then, we hope you enjoy the music we've discussed, that you continue to stay safe and well. And we'll see you next time discussing the music of film and TV between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. Motion pictures. It feels like a film that is a balm, and, and I never, I never thought that I would feel that about a Tarantino movie. You know, it is by far his nicest film. <laughs> you know, if, if you if you look at it from that context. So I've seen it four times now. I saw it on, on release on the opening weekend. I saw it then over Christmas, mm. and then I saw it about six weeks ago. I watched it. And then when I watched it again last night, because we decided to do this, and I really like this film. I think the things you're talking about, I think it's a great hangout film. Yeah. And that's what Tarantino's described some of his films as. Right in the childhood. They don't see the aliens because they're right. always in the tripods. And I think I the setting where, like, the, you know, where post-apocalyptic, they've lost all their technology. Yeah. It's become very popular, like very, very popular recently, but this is still prime for a remake, I think. I'd love yeah, to see I that. See I could see it, yeah, especially with shows that you see now that Ryan Oxford up to use comeback and stuff like that. For all those dystopian ones like Westworld and all that chance. Mm. Seeing like it could be if it's the right person, like, I, I could map, like, the BBC could do it too, It's fundamentally so, British. I wouldn't want an American remake. No, H- no HBO. Well, unless it's HBO. <laughs> Pick a disc. When watching Bryce Wisdom, I mean, was you, how hard was it to not think of, oh, if I was, if I was behind the same desk, I'd be... Oh, gigs are ruined for me forever. Yeah, it's... <laughs> you know, there'll be something that, you know, like a reverb will happen, and I'll go, oh, that was nice. And then all my mates are like, Ben, stop it. <laughs> just enjoy the gig. Um, the first thing I'll do is I always just poke my head over and just go, oh, you're using a Midas Pro 2. Interesting. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah, Digico SD7. Right, nice. And then the first thing I do and take a picture of it, and they're like, man, you're such a nerd. And, yes, I know. Um, yeah, and it's, but I love it. And that's kind of part of the enjoyment these days. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.